Thanks so much for being here this morning. Uh, as Tim mentioned just a little bit earlier, we are uh, starting our uh, outward groups up here uh, very shortly. And so you can find out more about that. We're obviously pushing this uh, a fair amount because we believe this, being in community is absolutely essential to what it looks like to be uh, to being or to be a Christian, I should say. And so uh, you can grab one of these. You can check out on the back where all the groups are. You can call that leader. We're going to pester you until you do that because church attendance does not necessarily mean commitment to Jesus Christ. It means that you know how to sit through a sermon, and sometimes a long sermon at that, which is very commendable. I appreciate that, but we're hoping that you engage in community in order that you can be somebody who is engaged with God on a much deeper level uh, than just uh, kind of a, a surface level. And so we want to invite you to that. We're going to be in James chapter 3. You can turn there with me. Uh, the book of James is very practical. It's very practical. It tells us how we can live. And one of the things that it's, it's going to talk about today is it's going to talk about how we need God's wisdom in our life, how we need God's wisdom in order to function properly as a community. Many of us, uh, we may know these things, but we don't act on them, or maybe uh, we don't know these things, and so we, we just kind of continue living the way that we do. But the, here's a fundamental truth for you, and that is that when you become a Christian, uh, what, what needs to happen, what should be happening because of what God has done for you, you get to respond in a way that says, I have given my life to Jesus Christ. So that then our culture would see your good deeds, my good deeds, and glorify God on the day of visitation. Not because of any other reason, not because we're just, we believe we have the right answer when it comes to religion, but because we are truly helping our city. We're passionately crafting things that are disruptive to our church, disruptive to our lives, but we are bringing hope to our city. We're able to see families healed. We're able to see people who were destitute have hope. We're able to bring great things into our city. And as a result, like if Outward Church were to go away, our city would be able to say, we miss Outward Church because of everything that God was doing in and through Outward Church. We want our city to be able to say that, not for our glory, but for his glory, so that he's the one that stands out in our city. And part of what that means is this, is that our lives as Christians, if you're a Christian here this morning, you may be somebody who's seeking, trying to figure this stuff out. Maybe somebody forced you to be here. You don't really want to be here. You're like, how long is this going to be? And I'll tell you, I don't really know. Uh, we'll, we'll find out here shortly, but, um, well, and maybe longly too, but, uh, but maybe you're just here and you don't really know what's going on. I want to explain to you something about what it looks like uh, to truly be a Christian. You may have had experience with Christians or so-called Christians, people who think that they're a Christian, who are really only somebody who carries that name around and really it doesn't define anything in their life. It doesn't really do anything to them. They, they just kind of are. They just, they, they just kind of walk around. They do things and they live like everyone else. And, and you're kind of looking at their life and you're saying, what difference are they making in the world? What difference does their religion make? Well, what James says is that if you have this religion, and I don't like the word religion, but he uses it. Religion is man's effort to, to reach to God. But let's just say we're using that word. If, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you believe that God is the one who has saved you, then that should have a marked difference on your life. It should change the way that you live. And so what James says we need is wisdom. We need wisdom. But let me tell you what often happens in our cities, in our homes, in our jobs, in our churches, in our families, in our marriages. Oftentimes what's taking place is this, is that we only get skin deep with people. And as soon as we overlap with each other, as soon as our lives intersect in a way that is kind of big, we recoil and we say, I just want out of this thing. When I look at, looked at this passage this week, one of the things that I really thought of was that so many of us never stick around long enough. And I'm not talking about just in a church, but I'm talking about in your marriage. We don't stick around long enough. Our culture believes that like, if it's not working out for you, then move on. But what you're missing is God's great design for your life that you would become better 
through the friction that is in the context of your marriage, that you would become better through even the suffering that you experience at times. And not all suffering should be experienced long-term. If you're being abused or if you've been abused, it's a good idea to get out of that relationship. If you're in a bad church, it's a good idea to get outside of that church. But too often, we say, this is uncomfortable, and so I'm leaving. This is uncomfortable, and so I'm, I'm going to take off here. And I just want to tell you this this morning. If you go, you lose the opportunity to grow. If you leave you lose the opportunity to grow. If you illegitimately leave, if you know what I'm saying, not because of abuse, not because of uh, heavy issues in your marriage, but if you leave, if you leave, if you just take off, if you say, you know what, I don't like this people getting all up in my business stuff. I'm out of here. I want to be gone. You lose the opportunity to grow. You, You lose the function that God has for you in your life. You use God's tools in your life. You lose that. And you lose the opportunity to grow as a Christian. And I'm convinced of this, that many of us would be much further along had we sustained our efforts. And whatever it is, it might be in your local church. It might be in in whatever church you're at. You may have left another church and maybe you should go back there because you need to stay If what God is doing there is a good thing, if they're teaching out of the word of God, and if what they're saying matches up with God's wisdom, then you may need to go back. Because when you go, you lose the opportunity to grow. And so what I want to talk to you about this morning, what James speaks to us about, is he tells us how we have wisdom in the context of relationships. How do you gain good wisdom in the context of relationships? How do you understand what it looks like to be a true Christian in our city and our society? What should your life look like? What James is going to say is that we need wisdom. He is just before this, at the beginning of chapter 3, he's talking about how our, our tongue needs to be tamed. He's into relational issues. The way that we speak to one another is incredibly important. The way that we speak to one, uh, one another, the words that we say are very, very important. And now we're kind of getting into more attitudes. And so let's read this. I'll pick it up in chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So the first thing that James says here is that he, he says, who is wise and understanding among you? Who, who among us is wise and understanding? There's some indication that he's talking to leaders specifically, and I would say he's especially talking to them, but the rest of us can't be uh, left out of this as well. What he's saying is he's saying, uh, who can stand up and say that I'm wise or that I'm understanding? Who within the context of the church are we saying has wisdom, who has understanding, who is seen as a leader? Or maybe you're just somebody in the church. You haven't gotten involved in leadership. You're not leading anything in particular. But what, what you need to understand is this. James is saying, do you think of yourself as wise and understanding? If you're a Christian, how do you view that? What does that look like in your life? And he says this. He says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So he basically sets out a thesis statement for us. And he says this. He says that there should be good conduct. The word good there could also mean beautiful. 
that there's something of beauty about the conduct that you have in your life. It's in your city. It's in your workplace. It's when people look at your conduct, it's not like, yeah, he's good, or yeah, she's good, or yeah, you know, they're all right, but it's beautiful. They look at it and they say, it is attractive. There's something about that person more than just, you know, whatever they're, what they're wearing or what have you, but there's something about their character. There's something about who they are, how they present themselves, that causes me to say that this person is beautiful. Their life is beautiful. It's attractive to me. It's handsome, guys, if that's better for you. It's, it's something that I want to be a part of. It's something that I see as valuable, and I see it, and I want to be in relationship with that person. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Now, when there's beautiful conduct, what we see is this, is that there's wisdom, but that wisdom is characterized by one thing, and it's characterized by meekness. Now, what is meekness? Meekness is a gentle attitude. It's a, a gentleness about you. Now, we talk pretty openly about uh, politics here sometimes because there's a, there's a sentiment among Christians and even uh, the uh, outside world that all even evangelical Christians are Republicans and maybe vice versa. I don't believe that at all, and uh, I, we're not going to get into the particulars of that, but let me just tell you that too often uh, Christians who hold a particular view are not meek, they don't have a gentle attitude, and the way that they're communicating, they're not loving toward the immigrant, they're not loving towards the person who disagrees with them, they're not loving toward anybody really there really is no meekness and what this is going to say is that that is not the definition of wisdom and so we're talking about wisdom here in the context of relationships and we're going to say what it is not first and then what it is and then how do we get it what it is not what it is and then how do we get it how do we get this wisdom in our life how do we allow this to take root in our lives and so we Look again at uh, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 14. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy, we'll stop right there for a second. If you have bitter jealousy in your hearts, if that's a part of your life. Now, what is this idea of bitter jealousy? The word jealousy in the Greek is zelos, Z-E-L-O-S. Sounds like zealous. It's it does mean zealous as well. And in fact, some commentators look at this and they say, a bitter jealousy is not the best definition of what this means. What it really means is harsh zeal. Now, when you put it in that context, think of Westboro Baptist Church. Harsh zeal. What is Westboro Baptist Church? Uh, Westboro Baptist Church is hateful. They're angry. They have signs standing outside of military funerals saying, God hates fags. God's judging our nation because of the homosexuality or, 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 homosexuality or, the, or the sexuality of our nation. It's, it's the, it is the absolute example of harsh zeal. But let me just tell you that that may be a big example of that, but that pervades our society, our culture, who we are, as we have a harsh zeal sometimes. It could be about a theological perspective. We've had a harsh zeal at times. We've needed to tone that down. It could be about a particular church. You may love our church and you have a harsh zeal about how we have it right and everyone else has it wrong. We have a harsh zeal if we think that way. You may have a particular mission that you're involved with at the church. And it's through that mission that you believe everyone should be involved in that thing. And if they're not, they're not doing what God has called them to do and you're doing all the work or something like that. That happens all the time in the church. You may have a particular viewpoint on life, and you may have a harsh zeal. You may have a harsh zeal about a lot of things. Harsh zeal comes out in a lot of different ways. Comes out with uh, young mamas sometimes. How we choose to raise our kids, where we're going to birth them, how we're going to birth them. Sometimes we can have a harsh zeal about these things. And sometimes we don't even understand it. We, we pick up a particular issue and we say, we say, this is the right way. And everyone else who does this 
is wrong. But there's a harsh zeal. And what it says here is he says, but if you have a harsh zeal about you, if you have this rivalry, this is a problem in your life. From one of my commentaries, Peter Davids says this. He says, the problem is that zeal can easily become blind fanaticism. Bitter strife or a disguised form of rivalry and thus jealousy. The person with harsh zeal sees himself or herself as jealous for the truth. But God and others see the bitterness, rigidity, and personal pride which are far from the truth. Hear me on this. If you've looked through these examples that I've given, he said there's nothing that... that that describes me, and you're a part of Outward Church, I want to tell you that James is speaking to the church. He's speaking to a, a particular church and p- perhaps many churches, and obviously he is because it's in the scriptures. But what James is saying is he's saying, I know about these things. I know what's going on inside of your culture. And guys, we're not immune. We're not immune to this harsh zeal towards our culture, towards our neighbors, towards our city, toward the the different political factions, towards the people that are around us. Every single one of us at times exhibit a harsh zeal. And this is not the wisdom of God. This is not the wisdom of God. This is blind fanaticism. And people can see right through the things that we're doing. They can see the rigidity of what we are. It's graceless. It's merciless. It's demanding that other people think like we do. Listen, if you feel like I just pointed you out or something like that, hey, guess what? i got to shine this light on myself. I've got to look at myself and say, where has my harsh zeal been? Where have I been harsh to other people? Every single one of us has a responsibility to look at our life and say, do I see the wisdom of God in my life in the context of the relationships that I have with other people. And oftentimes, we don't. How many times has this happened in our church or in our city? There there are numerous examples, especially in our church. And I wouldn't want to bring them up because I wouldn't want to shine light on anybody that used to be here or anything like that. But I just want you to know that this is a problem. And that's what James is saying. But if you have bitter jealousy harsh zeal, and selfish ambition. Let's talk about selfish ambition here real quick. Selfish ambition is this. I don't care what you want. I don't care about the whole. I want what I want. Sometimes it's taking that harsh zeal. It's taking that platform, that that idea, that thing that you want most, that theological perspective, and saying that this is the most important thing. And as a result, I'm going to build a platform on this. Aristotle used this very same word, And what it means in Aristotle is a self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. (coughs) It's getting politicky with things. It means you're building a faction. You're building a group of people. Oftentimes what happens in this context is that the church people gather around one person who has a harsh zeal about something. You know, I really think that we should whatever, fill in the blank. I really think that everybody should. I really think that this person shouldn't. I really think that we should be reaching our city in this way. And they build a faction. They build a group of people. And they say, let's rise up and let's create our own uh, political organization here. Let's separate ourselves from the body. But clearly what the scriptures continually over and over uh, talk about is one another. Love one another, serve one another, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's this idea that we are to be with one another. The idea of Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's not an individual sport. It is a sport that involves the body of Christ. It involves all of us. And so when we say, I've got one thing that I want to be about, and then I'm going to build my own platform I'm going to go after my own selfish ambition. I'm going to be selfish with this stuff, and I'm going to try to drag people away from this body. You know what happens? Bad things. That's not the wisdom from God. That is not God's wisdom in our life. That is not correct. 
in our city. Now, I, I want to be careful here because I think there are times that people need, need to gather together and say, this church is off track, but that needs to be done in community. That needs to be done in community. But selfish ambition. Let's talk about your work for a second. One of the worst things that you can do is diminish your character by having selfish ambition in the context of your work. It means that you're selfishly stepping on your workmates so that you can rise above the rest. You're building a political party, in essence, in and of yourself. It's selfish ambition. At the expense of the company, I want to get paid more. At the expense of my employees, I, I want to have more money. At the expense of my workmates, I want to whatever. I want to rise up in the company. I want that promotion. And so I'm going to shine a bad light on these people, and I'm going to shine a good light on myself. That's one of the worst things that you could possibly do because people look at that, and they see right through it, and they say, I see somebody who's selfishly going after their own means. They're selfishly trying to get their own stuff. And as a result, what happens is our city sees it, and they are not going to glorify God in the day of visitation when God comes, when Jesus returns, because of this, because they looked at your life and they said, if that's what a Christian is, then I want no part of it. Listen, if we're Christians, there should be something about us that people look at and they say, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. I cannot believe that that he let go of this promotion in order to maintain his character, in order that I could be promoted because my family's in trouble and I needed more money. And so he decided to step aside and say, bro, you need the funds and you're just as qualified. So what would happen if our city looked at us and said, I can't believe how incredible this guy is. That's disruptive to who I am and what I think Christians are like. That totally dashes any stereotype that I had of Christians before because what's happening is that people are looking at me and they're they're saying, I can't believe that you would act in this way because I've never seen that happen, maybe from a Christian or non-Christian before. So, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Now, what, what does this mean? It means this, that there's a lot of people who think that they have a lot of wisdom. Like you have, like you have some knowledge about the Bible, or you attend services on a regular basis, and you're somebody who's, who, who uh, uh, like you enjoy the Christian culture. And so you like to say about yourself, or you think to yourself, and you assure yourself that you have wisdom. What James is saying here is that that is a lie. If you look at your life and you can identify, man, I've got some harsh zeal here, and I have some selfish ambition here, it is a lie. Don't boast about it and say, oh, this is what I am. When, that's not what you are. That's not who you are. That's not, what's, that's not what's true about you. That's not the wisdom that comes from God. The truth is this, is that you don't even understand the first thing about God if you think that you have wisdom and understanding when these things exist in your life. So what needs to happen? Well, verse 15, it says this. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, or it's inspired by demons. This is the wisdom from the world, the flesh, and yes, the devil. Let's think about that real quick. Let's start with the, the one that seems the worst, right? When we have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and let me remind you, b- bitter jealousy, this harsh zeal, this self-interest, when those things are in our lives, guess what? You're being used as a tool of Satan to break apart the local church. You're being used as a tool of Satan to break apart your family. You're being used as a tool of Satan to get into every nook and cranny to steal, kill, and destroy for Satan. You're working for the enemy. John 10.10 says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And do you know what happens? When you create these things, these factions, 
in the church, when we create these things, what happens is this. We're doing Satan's work for him. That's what we're doing. We're inspired by him in that sense. And it, but furthermore here, it says it's, it's of the flesh. It comes from me. It's unspiritual. The, the passage says unspiritual. That word means like fleshy, of the soul. So it's coming from us. It's, it's unspiritual. It's fleshy. It's, it's coming from us. It's coming from our own hearts. We've called this series, Don't Follow Your Heart. And the reason why that is is because many of us think that somehow that what I believe, what pops up in my head, must be obeyed. That my first reaction is just to do whatever I feel like I need to do. You can use words that are spiritual to say, I feel like God called me to this. When really you just had a feeling. I'm sensing from the Spirit that He told me. I'm not saying that you can't sense from the Spirit. I'm just saying this. It's misused. It's misused a lot. And people oftentimes use that and they say, you know, I think God told me to whatever. God told me to. You know, this is just foolishness. This is not the wisdom that comes from God. This is coming from us. We say, don't follow your heart for a reason because our heart is deceitful. Above all else, my heart is constantly wanting to mislead me because that's my flesh. My flesh is wanting to get me into trouble. My flesh is wanting me to have my own way. My flesh says that everyone should follow what I'm doing. And when they don't, that's when I, I get angry. And so the, the, the first one that he used there is verse uh, 15. It's earthly. It's, it's worldly wisdom. If you want wisdom, if you want to understand how to get along in life, you can get a lot of sources from that. All you need to do is Google whatever. Self-help books galore. There are millions of them in our world today. How to become better at this, or how to have better relationships, or what have you. And so oftentimes what we're doing is we're either asking other people or there's people who are speaking into our life and they're giving us this wisdom. It might be somebody at work saying, you know, you don't need that stuff at home. You're not happy in this relationship. You got to get out of that thing. Get rid of your marriage. You just, you should be happy. But that's earthly wisdom. That's not of God. Because really true character, true Christian wisdom comes when our lives intersect, when we come together and we're people who are tight with one another. Jared, would you uh, show this um, graphic that I made? This is very complicated. You're going you're gonna to be very surprised at my graphic skills. Yes, yes. A and B. Person A and person B. I didn't put anything else on there because I, I, I got done with that and I was like, it's a masterpiece. Why would I change anything, right? And so what, what, what we often do, we, here we are. There's two individual people. You might be in a tender, something like that, but there's distance in between us. There's distance between you and the people around you. But oftentimes, next slide, this is what happens. We get together and we have, uh, we have initial contact, but you could also call this a superficial relationship. But oftentimes, this is where our world is. Not all relationships, but many of our relationships in our world are surface level. They're skin deep. They're superficial. They only go so far. But Christian community demands something else. Christian community demands this, that our lives intersect. And if I would have been a better graphic artist, I would have said that there is this commingling that happens in between there. When our lives intersect and we come together and there's friction there because you believe something different than I do. You're a Democrat and I'm a Republican. Or you're somebody who believes in all of the gifts of the Spirit and I only believe in these gifts of the Spirit. Or you have this theological position or you think it's all about mission or you... we come together and what happens in that space right there is that that's where the friction is. But here's earthly, worldly, fleshy wisdom from Satan. Is you know what? You need to distance yourself. You can't, you, you can't be together that close. They're getting up all in your business telling you how you should live. You gotta distance yourself. Or you should just be skin deep. 
You should just be, don't, don't get too close with people. You've been hurt before by the church, so don't get too close with people. But I just got to tell you this, that that is earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic because of this. Because it is in this context, when our lives overlap, that's where Christian growth takes place. That's when wisdom is found because of this, because we're commanded over and over again to love one another, to serve one another, to lift up one another, to bear one another's burdens, to submit to one another. How can you do that when your relationships are only skin deep? Well, I want to tell you that this is worldly. This is unspiritual. And I want to tell you that this is demonic because what this does to your spiritual life, especially in the, in the context of the church, is it is going backwards and downhill. As long as you're disengaged from community, as long as you don't have Christian friends who know you, as long as you're somebody who is just an attender, we're glad that you're here, by the way. And if you want to attend for a while and just hear the word, that's okay. But let me just tell you, I, I want to say this gently. That as long as you're just an attender, you're not fulfilling what God has called you to. You're not fulfilling the wisdom of God because it's just surface level. In the context of your marriage, when two people get married, there's often distance between them. You think that you're close, but there's distance between you. You're separated like this picture, person A and person B, husband and, husband and wife, the two spouses there. There's distance in between you, and what's, and what's happening is this, is that you, you start to date or you get engaged, and all of a sudden, boom, you've got, this, you've got this relationship. And what happens is this, is that you really only know someone ever so slightly. You really don't know the person that you're marrying. You kind of know some things about them. You can see kind of the trajectory of their life, possibly, but you don't really know them. I mean, there's some things that my wife knows about me, like stinky socks, like that she does not want to be around. You don't really know the person that you're around. You don't really know until you live with them what they're like. And no, this is not a, uh, an advertisement for you living together prior to getting married. married. We don't believe that that's helpful. And I don't believe that it is at all in the context of marriage. But what you need to understand is that when you get married, you're only surface level. But then as you get closer and as your lives begin to overlap, this is what takes place. There's a friction that's taking place. And people oftentimes look at that and they say, you're not the person that I married. Or, or you're way different than I thought that you were. Or I just can't handle this because she always or he never and I just don't like this because this is what's taking place. And let me just tell you, if you go, you lose the opportunity to grow as a Christian. Remember back at the beginning of the, chat, of the, of the book of James, what's he say? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Listen here. The wisdom from God says this, that as your lives intersect in a marriage, as the two are becoming one flesh, A and B become C, something completely different. In the context of the church, it's A and B. They're still individuals, but they're coming together as that's taking place. What's happening Trials of many kinds. But too often, we are up against earthly, unspiritual, and demonic advice that says, you know what? They're getting too close. You know what? This is not what you signed up for. You know what? You deserve better in your life. And it's demonic. And it's coming from your heart. And it's coming from people who think they mean well. It might be a parent, they're a good friend. It's a book, it's a podcast, it's Oprah. Whatever, I don't know who watches Oprah in here. But uh, I read the magazine, but that's, that's all, that's all. You know, but uh, it's, 
We're getting this advice from our world. It's not helping us. Where's your wisdom come from? Who's, who's in your ear? Who's talking to you? Who's telling you what to believe? Who's telling you what's right for you? Who's telling you what should be taking place in your life? You need to know something. And that is that too often we're listening to other voices in our lives. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. That's what he says. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. There's going to be disorder and there's going to be every vile practice. I hate to say it, but churches too often are examples of this. You get a lead pastor or an elder team in there, and I pray to God that that is not us. I hope that we're shining the light of Scripture on our life, listening to um, constructive criticism, submitting to one another, hearing your thoughts perhaps at times. But I just want you to know that this happens all too often in a local church where you have a pastor who's all about harsh zeal and selfish ambition, and what happens is that there's disorder in the church. Things are messed up. And you hear the things after the fact, after the dust settles, and that guy goes to jail or his family's torn apart or whatever, the, the, the church implodes. And you, you hear about what was happening behind the scenes, and you just go, how in the world could this be taking place? Like sex, drugs, and violence. There's affairs. There's all kinds of things. And it's because of this. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. That's just par for the course in our world. It's not that every place has disorder. Certainly people have learned how to order their lives, their businesses, their communities, and things of that nature. But we can see examples from our world where it's just chaos everywhere. Generally speaking, at our world, when you look at the fact that there is harsh zeal, hello ISIS, hello uh, heavy-handed Christians, I mean people who have big political agendas, harsh zeal that is selfish ambition. It's all about me, my mission, my religion, the things that I do, and everyone else should die or go away or pay me. And as a result, there's disorder in our world and every vile practice that happens in your marriage, it happens in your friendships, it will happen in your workplace, it will happen in our city, it will happen in our church. If we are not people who submit to the word of God and say, I am not going to allow this wisdom from the world to get into my life and say, you know what, it's all about you. Because that creates disorder. That creates every vile practice. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, and good fruits, impartial and sincere. What this says here is this. This is what the wisdom from God is. First of all, it's pure, it's innocent, it's having no faults. Wisdom that has no faults is a wisdom that is concerned about community. It is concerned about coming together, togetherness, one another, loving one another, being together in the community. This is the wisdom from above. It is pure. It doesn't have impure motives. Secondly, it's, it's peaceable. And think about the opposite of peaceable is, is like warring, creating war. How are you in your family system, whether it's in your marriage or maybe you're a, a child? Are you creating peace in your home or are you somebody who's constantly creating chaos? In your job, are you peaceable or are, are you bringing peace about in the context of your work? Are you loving peace? Are you promoting wholeness, well-being, and calm? Or are you sowing the seeds of discord? Talking trash about people? 
cutting them down, promoting yourself in your own agenda, your own zeal, your own ambitions. Because that does not create peace. The wisdom from God is peaceable. It brings peace into situations. Yeah, other people may not be peaceable, but what this is saying is this, is that in the face of persecution, I am peaceable. In the face of my spouse treating me like dirt, I am peaceable. In the face of our culture criticizing us, we are peaceable. We're bringing peace into our city. We are spreading peace. We are purveyors of peace. We're providing it. Because of this, the wisdom from God brings peace into warring situation, situations. It brings factions together and says, guys, we can work this out. It's peace-loving. Third, it's gentle. It's gentle. There are innumerable scriptures. I mean, they're probably not innumerable, but there's a lot, right? A lot of scriptures that we could go over and over again about what it means to be a Christian. When you confront somebody, do it gently. When you're pastoring, do it gently. When you're a friend, be gentle. It's, the definition of a Christian is someone who has a gentleness. There's a humility about their life that says that I don't have all of this figured out. There's a humility, and so it brings a gentleness. One of the things that I've had to work on the most in my life, and God has brought me an entire family, really, a loving wife who works with me on that, but my, especially my two daughters. When I command them the way that I do with my sons, I find out that was too harsh because the tears just start flowing, right? Ah, daddy told me, whatever. And I said, it's the same way I talk to all the kids, but she's a woman. I must bring gentleness, but it's not just with women, men. It's with other men. It is in the way that you treat your husband. Are you gentle with him? The wisdom from God brings gentleness to your spirit. There's a gentleness about the things that you say and the way that you act. It's open to reason rather than being obstinate and combative and defensive. It's willing and open to adopting another point of view, belief, or action, or course of action. It's listening. It's open to reason. The wisdom from God says that I am open to hearing what you have to say to me, wife, or friend, or churchmate. I'm not just going to shut you down. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. No, that's not loving. That's not kind. That's not the wisdom that comes down from above. It's full of mercy. It's full of mercy. It's compassion, pity, empathy. It's recognizing when someone else is, someone else is hurt. It's recognizing what's going on and, and, and empathizing with them and just saying, I see why you're hurt because of the things that I said. And perhaps maybe I didn't mean that. Maybe I did, but maybe I didn't. But I can still apologize for the way that you experienced my words and the things that I said. It's full of mercy. It's compassion. It's good fruits. It's a positive outcome. The things that happen as a result of your life bring a positive outcome. And it's sincere. It's sincere. It's not putting on a show. And the last thing he says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What happens is this, is that there is righteousness, a harvest of righteousness, rightness in our life. There's a harvest of righteousness in your and my life, in our situations. It's the wisdom of God that's being implanted into our world and in our city and in our homes. And as a result, there's this harvest of righteousness that comes about as a result of the wisdom of God. But the last thing is this. How do you get it? Because you could walk through this list every day and say, am I pure? Am I peaceable? Am I gentle? You could read this over and over again, but if one thing isn't true of you, 
then all of this is null and void. Because of this, if you're trying really hard to be humble, and you finally get to the point where you say, you know what, I finally got this hum- humility thing down. I'm, I'm, I've really got this down. In fact, I'm actually more humble than that person. Guess what you just did? There's a harsh zeal. There's a selfish ambition. See, here's the thing. You can't lead yourself out of a vacuum. You can't lead yourself out of this. You must be led out of this. You must be led out of it. It says in Proverbs 19.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I, I've got to fear God. Am I afraid of him? No, it's, it's this. It's, it's friendship with God. It's loving him so much that I honor what he says and honor what he believes. Proverbs 19.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So what this is saying in Proverbs is it's saying this, that the beginning of wisdom is to listen to what God has to say, to obey what he says, and it comes through that, the knowledge of the Holy One. What that is telling us is this. I don't know if you've ever heard this story. In the Gospel of Mark, there's a man who has a, he's demon-possessed, and he says, I know who you are, Jesus. You are the Holy One of God. You are the Holy One of God. The only way to have the insight of God is to fear what he says. Jesus comes to earth and he says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's another way of saying, I am What's embodied in me is the wisdom of God. What's embodied in me is the wisdom of God. And it's only through receiving Jesus Christ as Savior and dwelling on that. The reason why our songs at this church are all about, they're all about the gospel. We're talking about you're my life, you're everything. I'm... You're, you're all that I want. You're all that I need. It's through your cross. It's through your blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus is because of this. Because our lives as Christians have to be characterized by this idea that someone had to die. In fact, someone very important had to die in order for me to live. So from the top to the bottom, what has to be true about me is that there has to be a realization that I need something from God that I can't get because I am sinful. And you know what that does? It brands you with the ability to have meekness and humility because what you believe now is this, is that the only way for me to stand before God is through Jesus Christ. It's only through the Holy One of God. Because of my sinfulness, I can't be associated with Him. The Christian must regularly think through this, and this is why we confess and we repent. And we say, God, this is where I'm wrong right now. This is where, I, this is where I'm, I, I, I'm failing. And what can happen is this, is that I can boldly approach the throne of grace I can boldly approach God, and it's through Jesus, it's through his blood that I can go to him, and it's only in meekness, it's only in saying, I have no good works of my own that make me acceptable to you, and so I need you, I need the Holy One of God to make me right, to put me right, to make me righteous. Guys, when that happens, and it defines who you are, it defines your character, Do you know what populates in your mind? The wisdom of God. The possibility of acting on the wisdom of God. And you know what James is saying here? If you know God, if you have relationship with him, how in the world can you be prideful and arrogant? How in the world can you just go and leave your your marriage or your church 
or your job or the friendships that you have. Never talk to your neighbor again. How could you possibly do that and say, you know, you hurt me too bad when you see what God has done for you. You nailed him to the cross with your sin. I nailed him to the cross with my sin. How can I have any type of selfish ambition? How can I have any type of harsh seal when Jesus was gentle? And Jesus is merciful to me. And Jesus allows me to be with God because of what he's done for me. Those things can't happen. And if you go, you lose the opportunity to grow in this way, in God's wisdom, in your relationships, in your life. Stop leaving. Stop it. Maybe, maybe you're the exception. Maybe there's abuse. Maybe there's something that you need godly counsel on, but most of us are not. Stop leaving. It's in the overlap of our lives that sanctification takes place. It's in the overlap of our lives where we need the wisdom of God and we become wiser. Stop leaving. If you go, you lose the opportunity to grow. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning, there's many of us in here, including myself, that need to hear this from your word. Lord, I pray that we would take it not as uh, the pastor's word, but Lord, that we would take it as your word, your very words from scripture. And Lord, that it would be more than just a good sermon, but Lord, that it would be an application point, a point of application in our lives. <clears throat> The Lord, that we'd think through what it is that needs to take place that should characterize a person who fears you, who has humility simply because they realize how messed up their life was before Jesus. Lord, may that be us. May we affect our city in incredible ways because our city sees something beautiful in our lives. Lord, may, may there be many, many stories of people who come to Outward Church and really to other churches and come to faith in you throughout the world because the people of Outward Church are, have beautiful conduct. They have beautiful conduct. They're characterized by meekness, by gentleness, full of mercy and good fruits because of your great wisdom through the knowledge of your Holy One, Jesus Christ. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.